Hello, welcome to another episode of the Filming Mentories podcast. This is Jamie Benning talking to you from my house in southeast London. Yes, we are in lockdown again. Yes, it's crazy out there. No, I'm not going out. In fact, I've turned down some work recently because I just don't think it's safe at the moment. My wife has some medical conditions and I want to make sure that she's safe and that my kids are safe. This time I'm speaking to a guy called Martin Meunier, a French guy, Paris-born, and he moved out to the States to work in the film industry, worked on some really big films. We talk quite a lot about people in the effects industry. Uh, You may recognise some names, but there were some names flying around um, that I didn't pick up on that I'm going to go and do some more research on and, and find out more about those people. But Martin's had some great experiences in his career. He's a nice guy to talk to. And boy, does he talk. I asked one question. And I think he went for an hour and 15 minutes. The total length was over two hours. I've edited it down a bit, but this is the longest episode. But it's still very enjoyable. I've really enjoyed listening back to it, and I hope you do too. Uh, I'll be back at the end for a bit more jabbering on. Oh, one other thing to mention. When he talks about Dan, he's talking about Dan Lanigan, who was a guest on my episode earlier. Last year, he was the props collector. So we both have Dan as a mutual friend. Dan is the guy that owns some wonderful props, including uh, lots of Nightmare Before Christmas stuff, and also a big one for me, which is the original gun from Blade Runner, the hero gun. Anyway, I hope you enjoy my conversation as much as I did with Martin, and I'll be back at the end for a bit more jabbering on. How did you find your way into the film industry? What was the what was the path that took you there? Was there a moment in your childhood where you realized you that's what you wanted to do? Well, I think uh, anybody who's in their forties, right? We all have the same trigger, pretty much. <laughs> SW Star Wars. I mean, I don't think there's anything. I, I've rarely met anyone that's in their mid to late forties that wasn't triggered by Star Wars. I mean, it's it's. You know, I think so. Star Wars was a trigger. I, I, that threw me into model making, like probably at age, I'd say like 12. Uh, so I started making models, um, Lego versions of Star Wars ships. And that went on to uh, basically uh, blowing up the models, uh, burning them, shooting them, making them blow up. And then it was, all right, let's videotape this. And by the time I was like 18, I was, I was making sets with four cameras and blowing up everything that I could and making my own explosives, making all my own models and trying to recreate scenes from uh, Terminator and scenes from the abyss. And that was it. So you brought up in France? Oh, my mother's American, naturalized American. I was living in France. I basically immigrated. At, 24 to the US from France because I was working for I worked for about five years in the movie industry in in Paris doing commercials movies model making pyro makeup and when I got to the US I came to New York and I started working for a photographer in New York making uh, covers for like popular mechanics and models for commercials so what got you in shooting range of being in the film industry then? I uh, had a friend who was living in San Francisco and I always wanted to go to San Francisco because that's where Industrial Light and Magic is. So um, 
I moved to San Francisco. I had made a couple connections in France with some ex Australian magic guys. I called a few of them up and they were like, ah, you know, one of us is working for Henry Selleck on uh, James and Giant Peach. <clears throat> and I had seen that year, it was 94, um, when I got to New York, it was the, the release of Nightmare for Christmas on VHS. So that's when I saw Nightmare and I, I fell in love with Nightmare for Christmas. So I jumped at the opportunity to just go work on a stop motion movie and I got hired on James and Giant Peach. So what was your role on, on that then? I wanted to do some model making, but they didn't have room for me to work in the model shop. So I worked in the mold room and my first task was to register the faces, uh, the replacement faces for uh, the spider in James and Giant Peach. So I, you know, they introduced me like to the registration system. So these are, well, I'll explain like the, the spider in James and Giant Peach it was played by Susan Sarandon, and you remove a face without an expression on it to put another face. So there'll be an oo face, an a face, an e face, a scared face, and each face has a different brow expression. So I'll have a scary, happy, neutral brow. So for the spider, there was about 400 different faces with, uh, you could go from a scary oo to a happy oo. You had to go through an intermediary brow. It was a really complicated system. And uh, the faces had to match like perfectly. You took a face off, they had little magnets. It had to, they didn't have magnets actually, they had bicycle chains. And it had to match the exact position of the other face. So we had this system called a frame grabber, which was an early stop motion registration video system. So next to your camera, you had a little video camera and you could look at the animation that you were doing and go back and forth with frames and have a fade in between frames. And this would, this would help the animators basically figure out the next frame. And uh, I think they introduced that on Nightmare for Christmas. I think Dan Mason was taking care of registering all the faces for uh, Jack Skellington introduced that process. And you can, you can see that in the one of the Cinefix. So that was my goal was to go in this little room with a bunch of faces and make sure that they wouldn't wobble, but every single face would wobble everything was just it was you didn't have any registration it didn't work and we had like hundreds and hundreds of faces and none of them worked so there was a big panicky moment where everybody was really stressed because that that character was pivotal and we couldn't get it to work so you knew you could fix it i one night i remember i was like uh, this should work i don't know why it doesn't work and i went in the mold room and i and i checked and i realized that these little bicycle chains were were wobbly when they were put inside the molds they just they, they shook so every face that was cast, the bicycle change that was supposed to be the registration for the face was off every single time. So I, I came up at that point with a new system. I said, well, screw that little bicycle chain. We're, we're going we're gonna to use a different system. And I just basically did a test with magnets and I reused the bicycle change, but I, I, I linked it to some magnets and did this whole thing, this little mold, this little casting. And um, one of the supervisors, though, sadly got fired because of this, this mishap. And the other supervisor that came in, Chris Gay, uh, he, he asked me what I was doing. I told him, he said, well, let's try it. And it worked. It was perfect. <laughs> so I had like kind of on my own fixed a problem. And uh, that got me in trouble because uh, they were like, oh, you're a loose cannon. Why did you do that? 
<laughs> I was like, you know, I was 24 and living in France. I didn't really know what the term loose cannon meant. And basically at that point, Chris was like, well, no, it's great. Thank you so much for fixing the problem. Yeah. We don't give a shit about ego. It's all about the work, you know? So he kind of made me a, like he gave me a, a more of a role to basically fix all these issues, which I did. And while I was working there, I made friends with, a, I mean, that's when I made all my friends at Skellington. There was all a bunch of old ILM guys and model makers. And I, I would stay at night and talk with these ILM dudes where they were just working in the machine shop. Like Tom Senamond was one of the guys that was there always working. And Tom had worked on, you know, on Empire Strikes Back and Star Wars and every single movie. And uh, he's such a wonderful guy. He's just, just, just the nicest. And, you know, he's like... We'll tell you stories of working with Phil Tippett on, on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. How they were, they were, he was animating the, the, the ant and Phil was animating the scorpion. They were animating the scene together and they were like arguing and chatting. And it was like, so one day he, he, he brings over, for fun, he brings over uh, the cane the robot from Robocop 2. Uh, it's a stop motion puppet and he leaves it in my office where I'm working on registration, registration on faces. And I was like, I, I, you know, it, it, it was like a dream come true. I had the stop motion cane like right there next to my desk. And I, 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 just, I was animating it all the time, moving all the parts. And it's so complex. It's so beautiful. And most of the guys who worked on that, that, that puppet, Merrick Cheney and uh, Mark Rabot, Chris Rand, they were all there working at Skellington. So they were like, came by and go, oh yeah, I machined that and I made this and I cut this. And Merrick was like, and I painted this. And then he brought also a pair of uh, machined legs from the At-Ats from Empire Strikes Back. So it was, yeah, it was like in a, in a, in a, in some white cloth, he opened it up and it was the legs. It was just the, the, the metal, the inside, the legs of the At-Ats. And I was, you know, again, you know, my eyes just went point. Geek heaven, yeah. And, oh my God, geek heaven. I mean, that was like, you can't believe it. It was like, oh, you know, going from France and to, to, to the U.S. and seeing that, touching that. So I made friends with Tom and Tom was, he, he's an incredible painter. He's a painter and he's a sculptor. And, and he told me that, yeah, why don't you uh, sculpt something? And I was like, ah, you know, I loved animals. I, I was a huge fan of the uh, animalian movement in France where uh, Bari would sculpt these beautiful animals. And I had all these books on American, African wildlife. And, I, and he said, well, just sculpt a rhino. So I got some Sculpey, which I never worked before. I never knew Sculpey. And I sculpted this rhino and he gave me all the texture pads. Tom gave me all these texture pads to, to texture the rhino. And I think they were texture pads from, from uh, uh, Chris Wallace. Uh, and there were some of them were used for were like some of them came from like Rick Baker or some came there were all these incredible texture pads and I was like there was a history to the texture pads and he just said hey you're use these so I sculpted this this rhino and I I, I kind of blended a black rhino and a white rhino together uh, I did this rhino and I did this beautiful little base and I, I molded it at Skellington at night so I had these castings of these rhinos and um, my ex-boss who, who got laid off because of the spider face incident, he was this incredible model maker. John Reed, the sweetest guy in the world, 
and just uh, again like a legend he, he, John Reed had molded the Enterprise for Star Trek The Next Generation so he showed me pictures of the you know the TNG giant Enterprise of him molding it so you know I was like again blown away and he said well uh, he, he'd gone to Tippett Studio and uh, he called me and he said you know uh, I heard you sculpted this this rhino or I can't remember how it went but he said you know there's a sculptor here that uh, Ron that is a Dutch sculptor and his dad just passed away so Ron has to go to Holland and they need somebody to come and sculpt these bugs and I was like gosh you know for who and he's like for Paul Verhoeven now you know I, I, I was just <laughs> <laughs> so I take it you're a big fan of Robocop and everything else Robocop was one of the big influences in my life also so I jumped on the opportunity to go have an interview at Tippett and I brought my rhino. So I got to Berkeley and it was the, uh, the uh, Grayson street studio for Tippett. And again, I mean, when you walk into that studio, Grayson street, uh, yeah, your, your, your mind goes, it's just, you know, you walk in and there's this little room and there's, there was a giant, beautiful painting of, uh, the dragon from Dragon's Lair on the wall, and I, 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 I was nervous. So I go to the bathroom, and on the, the, you know, above the toilet bowl right there is the sculpture, the original sculpture of Jabba the Hutt. The maquette, is it? The yeah, maquette, the, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's right there, and I'm like, holy <laughs> shit, that maquette is probably covered in so much urine, you know, <laughs> but still very valuable. <laughs> yeah, it's like. The, the last spot of the maquette of Jabba is, is getting to watch guys take a piss <laughs> and getting splattered. He probably would like that, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I go into the studio and it's Grayson Street and it's, it's this, this dingy little studio at Grayson Street, but it's where they shot, uh, you know, it's where they shot Robocop and Robocop 2 and they just finished the Coneheads and then I, I, I showed my portfolio which, you know, and a bunch of sculpting stuff that I did in France and and I brought the rhino, and uh, I was there showing it to Craig Hayes. And Craig Hayes was the designer for uh, Robocop. He's the one who designed uh, Robocop 2. And he's the one who built the Ed 209 for the first Robocop at Ron's studio. Uh, so I brought the rhino, and Craig was like, hey, can I keep that? And I was like, sure. So I gave it to Craig. And I think he gave it to Phil and like, I got a call maybe like a, a few days later. They're saying, hey, you want to come and sculpt? So the Rhino wow. got me that job. You, you're just ticking off the names here as we go. It's like, because this is the thing, like just to go back to what you said at the start about how Star Wars is the kind of launch pad for a lot of us in our 40s that are either in the industry or interested in it or just in the creative industries anyway. But I think one of the things that f those films did as well is they kind of made heroes of those people behind the scenes. So we knew the names Dennis Muren and Phil Tippett and Joe Johnston and Tom Sandman and all those guys. And for you to, you know, have this kind of path through and eventually working with a lot of these guys, that must have been hugely exciting. It was. But I tell you the interesting part. All right. So the big name, Phil, all those guys, you know, I got to know a lot of them, but it was all the other guys that were the most interesting it was all the the uh you know merrick cheney and and uh a lot of guys that were were not as well known 
that were working on Astrolite Magic. Uh, Chris Gay, uh, um, all these other guys that I mentioned, they were they were all like, you know, Mitch Romanowski, all these model makers, all these 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 painters that uh you know they weren't it, it's not the they were not the big guys they were not, not you the know lorne peterson yeah. and and steve golly and charlie bailey i got to know all those guys too uh when i went went to work in ilm i mean a decade later but it was the crowd it was all these workers and and you know it was amazing because they'd worked on bits and pieces but by working on bits and pieces they had all the fun stories. They had, uh, and they were all connected. Everybody knew each other, and still to this day, I talked. I talked to Tom maybe like uh, you know three weeks ago, and still to this day, everybody is connected. And it was also, we were working on Seventh and Harrison in San Francisco, so we were working at this place called the San Francisco Studios, which used to be an old uh, uh, porn studio. So they shot a ton of porns there. And uh, there was like a rumor. I remember that there was a ghost of some some porn star that was killed there. So, <laughs> but no giant slugs on the toilet system there, right? No, the toilets. <laughs> oh wait, wait, wait. No, no, that was no. Actually, <laughs> the most impressive thing at Skellington at that time. So this is Skellington where they shot Nightmare. This is the building where they shot Nightmare at San Francisco Studios. And outside the door was a little Walk of Fame. Uh, and with uh, Hervé Villachez's hands print, and it was this little walk of fame. It was tiny. I mean, it was like these these stars that weren't really big stars, but anyway. The, but so the studio was at Seventh and Harrison, and it was a pretty dingy neighborhood. But there were a ton of great restaurants around, like old restaurants that were fantastic. So that was my first uh, adventure in San Francisco restaurants, because at, at lunchtime everybody would go out. Hey, you want to go here? You want to go to Juan Tulan? You want to go there? You want to So I, I got to explore all the restaurants and all the cuisines of San Francisco, which was in itself like one of the best experiences of my life. But uh, the bathroom at Skellington was called the Claw Bathroom, and I took pictures of the Claw Bathroom. I still have all the pictures. And the claw bathroom was, the male, the guy's bathroom was just 100% graffiti. But artistic graffiti from every person on the crew. All the model makers, art directors, painters. It was covered. And there was artwork everywhere. I, I found there was this, uh, this uh, concrete turd on the ground. <laughs> and hidden behind the concrete turd, I found one of the little worms from Oogie Boogie. <laughs> nice touch. And then on the on the wall of the stall on the inside was a list of uh, colloquialisms for going to the bathroom for number two. <laughs> and everybody got to write the, write down their little colloquialism. One of them was like launching a Republican. Uh, I, I wrote uh, writing the sandworm of Arrakis that was mine yeah nice <laughs> it was a giant list I learned a lot of my vocabulary from the claw bathroom yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah suddenly your, your 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 English is flying now yeah where'd you get that where'd you learn so I mean anyway so uh, Skellington was like one of the I, I worked maybe like 10 months on, on James and it was it was so much fun it was like I met so many incredible animators you know, Webster Calcord, uh, uh, Anthony Scott, one of the sweetest, nicest person 
in the world. Anthony, Anthony was just so nice. And a lot of these, I worked late. I worked every night. I was just, I had nowhere to go. So I just stayed there and I worked. And I did my own stuff. And I made friends with all the security guards there that used to be all these uh, Hells Angels because there was a Hells uh, The Hells Angels were doing security for the studios. So I met all these crazy Hells Angels that were like just like, you know, scary. I yeah. Mean, scary. Everyone guys. with a story to tell there. Yeah? Oh my God. Yeah. And it was, it was, I, I remember one night I came in and this guy, Mike, was, was, he was sharpening his knife on one of the. The sharpening tools, you know, in the mold room. I'm like, all right, that's nice. And it was a lot of fun. And the tattoos, let me tell you, some tattoos, I, I'm not going to describe what they were. But one of them at one point was like, hey, can you fix this? It's one of our trophies that fell in our, in our, <laughs> in our clubhouse. So I got to fix it, you know, a Hell's Angel, uh, a trophy. And I was really careful with it. Yeah, I bet. I bet that was one of the more nerve-wracking jobs. Oh, I was like, I got to be careful with it. It's like it was a skull with wings. I'm like, all right, wow. yeah, better be careful with that. But Skellington was so much fun. It was just like – but so I, I left Skellington, and, and every time somebody left, they did a party. So I had a they, – they, they threw me a little, like, goodbye party, which was super sweet. And that's where also where I met uh, Henry Selick because he was directing – and then I remember for the, uh, we have the 14th of July, our independence. I, I got called upstairs and it was Henry and the producers and everybody like started singing to me like the, the French anthem and saying, hey, happy 4th of July, I'm 14th of July. So that was, a, they were sweet. Everybody was sweet. It was, a, it was a, it was a family. Yeah. It was a family. I that a lot. Yeah. Oh, it was great. And so, I mean, the whole, it was, it's a family. It's like, they're all like, you know, that was my main experience was how sweet and great they were. And and then I went to Tippett Studio, which was different. <laughs> because I, I that I got to sculpt there. I, I, so I was saying I got hired and I left Skellington and I got hired to sculpt the the bugs for Starship Troopers. And so there was one other sculptor there called Pete Koenig, who now is an art director and he was like he he worked on, uh, he worked at Rob Bottin, or, or you know, I think he worked with Chris Wallace on, on, on the Robocop too. And he was just a, you know, very famous, very talented young sculptor. So I started working with him on the bugs for Starship Troopers. And, uh, yeah, I sat down that day and Craig said, I brought me a drawing of the tanker bug. And he said, all right, good, sculpt that. And it was a pretty rough drawing. So I, I spent maybe like a month sculpting the, 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 the tanker bug and it was great because he let me come up with stuff you know like i i said you know he's got this this, this he's got this air intake on the back uh, where he sucks in the air and he's got these two i mean i, I got i got to to be creative with it and uh then uh pete koenig took my sculpture and did all the finishing work all the texture on it and then and he asked me to sculpt the uh, the hopper which is that green bug with the the, the wings same thing. I got to do that, and Pete finished all the texture on it, and then I, I did the uh, the plasma bug, and uh, it was great. It was at Grayson Street. It was the old Tippett Studio, and again, everybody. It was it was harder to go to lunch because Berkeley was a little more not as, you know, because uh, um, my partner is San Francisco, so it was harder to find a place to go to lunch. But so at lunch, I would I would stay at Tippett's. 
And I asked Phil, I said, hey, can I, can I go into your, your, there was a second floor of his office and a bunch of cardboard boxes. And I'm like, I asked him, I said, hey, can I go up there and look at stuff? Can I just like scrounge around? And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Go for it. <laughs> so I was looking through so the shop. Disappeared for two weeks. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I was just like, so, but wait, wait, this is, this is, this is the kicker. This is the fun part. So there was a ton of Star Wars stuff everywhere, you know you know, masks from the cantina because, you know, he sculpted some of the characters. And I uh, I go to this desk and I see a cardboard box and then, you you know, a desk. And I pull it out. It's an old cardboard box and there's a bundle of wires in there, bundles of cables. And, and I pull this thing out of the box and it's, it's a bundle, a snake-like bundle of cable that terminates in an eyeball. Hmm. <laughs> that you know. <laughs> It's the, it was the, and yeah, it was the, uh, the, 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 the trash, snake from the trash yeah. compactor. What, what's his yeah. name? Is there a name to that creature? Yeah. They call it the Dianoga, I think. Yeah. The Dianoga. I never knew yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just pulled it out of a box and I was like, I, I, I asked him afterwards after lunch, I was like, Hey Phil, do you know you have, you know, that thing in a box? And he's like, Oh, right, right. Yeah. That's where that is. <laughs> yeah. He didn't even know. Yeah, and his somebody office would have paid was, quarter of a million for that, probably. Yeah. Well, I, I helped him put uh, all that stuff at auction uh, ten years later for profiles in history because he wanted to uh, fund. Well, more than ten years later, he wanted to fund his uh, the um, you know the Mad God. So I organized an auction, and we sold in like fifteen minutes. We sold one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars of stuff. Wow. Which helped him. Which helped him. He had a, he had a, a cardboard at at, a small background animatable uh, yes. flat, yeah. and we sold that for fifty five thousand dollars that day. Wow. Fifty five grand. Huh. Yeah. It was. It was. If he'd known, he would have made another ten back in seventy nine, right? <laughs> guys, all these guys. I mean, you know, the stuff at auction. I sold for a lot of my friends at Skeleton. I sold a lot of stuff. An auction for them, you know. I, I helped him out. I, my friend Lauren, she had, she she was in trouble and she needed some money, and I just went into her shed, and it was an old rotting shed in her backyard, and I pulled out a bunch of stuff, like left and right, and we sold sixty five thousand dollars worth of stuff from her shed. So back at Tippet, uh, once I was done sculpting all the the the, the bugs, uh, Craig and, and Craig. You know, he's probably in the thirties. Is Craig Hayes is genius. I mean, you know, artistically, he was, he was he was up there, and he was a computer whiz too. So they were they had set up the shop at Tippet to work on uh, to work on uh, Tremors two, and the creatures in Tremors two were were digital. It was the first time they did digital creatures. So they had set up the shop with the DID, the dinosaur input device, to shoot stuff for Tremors 2. So they, they had a bunch of computers there. And um, Phil, I guess, got a call from, from Paul to do Starship Troopers. So they were able to set up a bigger shop, the computer shop. And that was uh, up the street. There was a company called Rocket Science. It was doing video games. I think they, they, they took over the building and they set up. Uh, what is Tippet Studio now today? And it's there. I think they're still there. It's it was their the, the the digital department, basically. So I came in and it was Craig. 
Fraser's a motorcycle, you know, aficionado. He loves motorcycles. He loves mountain bikes. He was, at that time in San Francisco, there was a huge motorcycle culture. It was like the the British Triumphs guys and then the Japanese guys. Uh, well, they're all, all San Franciscan, but some of them like Triumphs, some of them like bicycles. At Skellington, I got to meet Merrick Cheney, who used to work with, there. he was like a schoolmate of Greg Hayes, and they were all in the motorcycle clubs together, the British motorcycle crowd. And so these guys were pretty rough. I mean, they liked, you know, they would race at San Francisco. They would race motorcycles at night. Uh, there's, a, there's a place on Russian Hill where there's a, a very hilly street, but it, it's basically, it, there is a, a street that goes up, then there's a flat, and the street goes back down immediately. So these guys would jump the street. They would go as fast as they can up the street, and they would try to jump the the, the, the connection, the flat connection between the two. Yeah, so there was there was there were there was a lot of accidents. A lot of people died. A lot of a lot of injuries. A lot of pins and bones. But anyway, so Craig was was he was not like your computer your average computer geek. He was just he loved computers, and he just asked me straight up, "Hey, you wanna you wanna do some computer modeling?" I had no idea. I never touched a computer before. And I was like, sure. He's like, all right, yeah, come over. Here's your Indigo 2 machine. Uh, here's a scanner that I built. Um, and uh, it was like a handheld scanner to scan models. So we had molded all the parts from the, the Starship Troopers. We had molded all the creatures. And uh, we, we said, well, we're going to take the plastic bits. We're going to draw on them, the vertices. And then we put him on in this this device, and then you can click the. We're making points on these models, and you basically click each point, and it'll create a point cloud in Soft Image, and then you connect those point clouds into vertices, and you make models. So there was this was like, you know, this is extremely primitive computer graphics. This is 1994 Indigo Two machines, Soft Image software, and he basically said, "All right, you got a week." To model the hopper, which is the creature that you that, that I sculpted, the green one, and uh, I I hadn't even touched a mouse before. And he sat me at the computer. My desk was a door with a with a you know an eye hole in it, and uh, he said, "Go for it." And I was I was like, yeah, "All right, sure, whatever." You know, the the uh, the innocence of ignorance. And I modeled the hopper. It took me two weeks to model it. And at the end of two weeks, I had the computer model done. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, a lot of people were talking to me back then. I was because it was all computer guys. And it was like, I was pretty quiet. I was like, uh, sat in my chair and did my work. And at the end of the two weeks, Craig, I, I showed the model. And uh, Blair Clark was working there. And so Blair Clark was... Uh, machinist and a model maker at nightmare for christmas and james he didn't work on james he just worked on nightmare but blair again him and anthony scott two of the most the sweetest nicest caring soft-spoken beautiful people i've ever met and blair was the art director and he's like well, i think i'm sure he was the art director but he was working there doing cg and uh you know he he basically said, yeah, what you did there in two weeks, you know, usually people take two months to do it. So Craig was like, all right, you're the modeler. You're going to model the bugs. 
and I, I, I modeled the, the tanker bug. I modeled the, the one that I did, the, the hopper. And then I, I remodeled the, uh, the, whatchamacallit, it was the, the brain bug. And then I, I rigged the brain bug so he would have all of his, um, his floppiness, you know. And it, that took me like three months to do. So I spent about a year and a half or I think almost two years doing the computer modeling. I got to computer, I had to do all the, I modeled all the, uh, the digital characters and I rigged the digital characters. I, I ended up doing some, some animating some scenes. Uh, I, I animated the two guys that get melted from the tanker bug. I, I animated some of the, uh, uh, the plasma bugs firing the plasma out of their butt, things what like that. What was the that. kind of render time back, back then? Well, I tell you, they had a, a, there was a room, a big room with the computers in it, you know, and it was like, I can't remember the value. That was a massive room. You know? It was like $3 million worth of computing power in there. And the big deal is that they had one terabyte. Oh yeah. I was like one terabyte, <laughs> you know, it's like the, it's the Dr. Evil million dollar version of, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one terabyte. So it took a long time to render. I was, I was, all the compositing and rendering were downstairs. I was upstairs. And uh, I sat next to Merrick and I sat next to Paul Verhoeven's daughter, Helen Verhoeven. Uh, and she was doing art direct. She was like, like, just one of the most talented, you know, artists that I'd never met. She was a crazy, like, probably like 21 year old. Um, extremely beautiful, fun, crazy artist. So it was it was cool. We had a, we had a nice group of people upstairs, like the art department. It was fun, and but a lot of the and a lot of the the, the, the some of the people from Skellington came over, like Merrick came over, Grace Murphy, a lot of fun people. My friend Aaron Kaur was working there too, and there everybody was working on the CG side, and but. It was interesting because we would screw with some of the CG guys because there was a lot of stuck up CG guys. Right. So it was, <laughs> it was a lot of, they didn't like confrontations, you know? So I remember one day in the screening room, I, I, I mentioned that one of them, you know, I said, well, you know, maybe uh, you shouldn't have done this this way. Maybe you should have done this way. And, oh my God. It was like, it was like a, a diplomatic incident right there. It's like, <laughs> Another oh, one, so, yeah. I realized, oh shit, you know, you, you got to be very careful. Computer people are very sensitive. Way more sensitive than, than you know, model makers and such. How, how long were you at Tippett? So I, I worked at, I worked for Phil for about two and a half years. And I'll be honest, by the time it was over, I was fully burnt out. I was like, oh yeah. I mean, I was, I was, my, my hand was, was hurting from the, uh, using the, the mouse. It was just like, I, I, I pains in my back. I was, cause at the time there were absolutely no, you know, OSHA regulations and, and repetitive stress injuries were just like completely, nobody knew about repetitive stress injuries. So I screwed my hand so bad that I quit. I was basically, I can't, I can't do this anymore. It's just too too painful and i'll be honest with you at that time uh 
they came up to me and said, oh, I want you, want you to be like, uh, like the head of the art department up here and we're going to work on this movie and it's directed by uh, uh, James Cameron's art director and it's this uh, movie called Virus. And I saw the, you know, the art, the, the artwork and I was like, oh God, I, 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 this is, I do not want to spend a year and a half of my life working on that bad a movie. It's like, it's not worth it. So I left and I just went to start working on my own, I, uh, sculpting sculptures for uh, this restaurant in San Francisco. It's an Italian restaurant. I made friends with the the, uh, the owner, and I spent almost two and a half years sculpting stuff for him, which was one of the best times in my life. But I was doing it at M Five Industries, and M Five was uh, Jamie Heinemann's shop. Who and Jamie became, uh, you know, MythBusters. So I started working for for Jamie for years and years and years, just before he did MythBusters. So I worked for Jamie for at least five years, and it was a lot of crazy projects: sculpting, model making, uh, puppeteering, making props. And I kind of um, made friends with Jamie. So it was M Five was like he let me work there as much as I want. But more so, fulfilling work than sitting in front of a computer and getting yeah. RSI with a mouse. Yeah. Back to your roots kind of thing. Back to your roots practical. And that's when uh, Henry came back uh, working on Monkey Bone. So I ended up working on Monkey Bone, but I ended up working on the um, the model, the giant, uh, uh, the, the hand that opened up in Monkey Bone that had this gigantic. So I worked on that at M5. And... Uh, then I went on my own a little bit more. I, I, I was worked back in France in some movies. And uh, then I decided I always wanted to be a writer. So <clears throat> at that point, I decided I'm going to go to L.A. and try to become a writer. So that was 2000. And I think I... So I went to L.A. And I wrote some scripts. And I ended up working at... Because I needed work, too. I ended up working at Digital Domain back on CG. So they hired me to work on Triple X because I showed them all my work from from uh, Starship Troopers and one of the producers from Starship Troopers went up working in a digital domain. So he said, come on by. So I did a bunch of, of uh, CG environments for Triple X, snowscapes and rocks for this sequence at the end when Van Diesel, Vin Diesel uh, surfboards down the mountain and there's an avalanche. And I was using my sculpting skills to do it. I was I was basically using uh, the the ZBrush equivalent in Maya, which is the sculpting tools, and I got really good at it. So it was, it was really easy for me to do snow and rocks. And after that, they were like, "Well, we're going to work on this big movie the day after tomorrow, and we want you to do these icebergs." So I spent like eight months making all the iceberg for the opening sequence of uh, the day after tomorrow that's this long pan and uh what happened there was a lawsuit at digital domain and they lost that shot and this other company hydrolux got the shot and then they they it's a funny story they they uh, had an article in cinefax with all these icebergs and I was like, wow, that's all of my icebergs. It's like, you know, everything that I did for that shot, the eight months, they all kept it. The ice sheet, the icebergs, everything. 
And then in the uh, in the article, they said, oh, we sculpted everything by hand and scanned all these icebergs. So I was like, all right, cool. They did that. Yeah, but those are my icebergs. So I called, I, I started emailing them and just saying, hey, you know, uh, just I'm in L.A., uh, you know, if you guys need some modeling work, uh, you know my work because I model these icebergs for the day after tomorrow. And they answered back, and this was the head of the company, answered back, no, no, actually, you didn't. We uh, we scanned them, and then we modeled them. And I said, oh, well, that's really nice of you to have kept my name that I carved in the front of the icebergs. <laughs> because I digitally carved my name in the front of the icebergs. <laughs> And I said, that's really cool of you. Thanks for doing that. <laughs> and I've never heard from them again. <laughs> so, you know, it's good to sign your work. Even. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, so and then I worked for I worked for Digital Domain for a while. And then I was writing and I got an agent and I wrote a, uh, I had a writing partner and we wrote a pitch and we sold the pitch to Disney animation for feature film so suddenly i had like my name in variety and i sold us uh, i was like one of the first non-disney writers to have sold a, a pitch to disney i would not staff and i worked a year for them and then everybody got fired and uh, <laughs> that went I, thought, down. I thought there was a butt coming here from the tone yeah of the I was, that went down the drain 250 people got fired and uh, the guy had written this for uh, he got fired too, so that was it. And it's, is it, it's, it seems the case often when things like that happen that they never want to go back and give it another go. It's like it's done, it was a one chance thing, and they're moving on. It is done, yeah. And it was a great story. It was like it was basically uh, Gladiator meets the Lion King. It was Cleopatra's pet leopard who thinks he's a big shot in, the, in Cleopatra's palace, gets kicked out of uh, the palace, and ends up uh, meeting a ragtag group of animals that open for the gladiator games and teaches them showmanship until they get so good at it that they really have to go into a real gladiator game and face Julius Caesar's bodyguard, which was this albino rhino, which was the one, the guy that got kicked him out of the palace in the first place. So that was our pitch. And Disney was like, oh, this is great. Love it. You know, gladiator meets the Lion King. It's perfect. And that's in a shelf right now somewhere. Yeah. And do they own that then? Is that theirs forevermore? Yeah, that's theirs yeah. forever and ever and ever. Shit. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, it's fine. But with all these things, I guess, you know, the, the one door closes, another door opens, as they say. What happened? Uh, how did you get onto the next picture? At that moment, I got a call from Henry. And basically, uh, it was like, hey, uh, I'm going to work on... Because Henry, I mean, he he remembered what I did on on he knew that i helped on james and he uh i saw him again on on uh on the, what you call it um monkey bone but in the interim his producer arian sutner had done this tv show called the phantom investigators and while i was working at m5 i helped out on that and i did a bunch of creatures and i did a bunch of stuff for her so she called me and she said do you want to be the stop motion supervisor for this movie that henry's going to do and basically not the stop motion but the stop motion creature supervisor so I, I would build all the creatures the stop motion creatures and i said you bet absolutely i just got my ass kicked in la so let me go back to san francisco and they had they offered me a 
with extremely good salary. And I was like, yep, let me do it. And the movie was The Life Aquatic. So <clears throat> I went to San Francisco, Henry showed me the script, and we showed all the characters, and then I basically drew all the characters on this big sheet. And uh, there was like, I still didn't think it was real. And it was like three months of pre-production. And then basically I said, uh, I was working uh, at my shop. I had a shop at that point in San Francisco next to Merrick's shop, which I met at Skellington. And uh, I started sculpting the, the all the prototypes. I hired a bunch of guys. I mean, it's interesting because at the time uh, in the special effects industry, it was extremely white, like, the majority was white males in their 20s and 30s. And I had taught in LA at the uh, Art Institute or the Art Academy or the Art College or the College of Arts, one of them, can't remember. And I, I had a bunch of, uh, it was, I had a very eclectic crew at that point. And I had, uh, I met this young guy named Miguel, who's a Mexican uh, kid, and he, uh, Miguel Sandoval, and he was like a 50s crooner and he loved anything in the 50s and he had like the pompadour but he was a really good sculptor so <clears throat> i called him up and i said miguel you want to come to san francisco and help me sculpt these characters for henry and so miguel showed up and then i had a i had met a a friend uh, i met a kid from thailand and he was a genius sculptor and i hired him too so now I had the French guy, the Mexican guy, and the Thai guy, and that was our little group. And we basically sculpted all the characters <clears throat> on the on the on the, the Life Aquatic. And started sculpting uh, these these sugar crabs and the, uh, the the pony fish. There was a lot of them, and some of them they never made it into a movie. And uh, I also hired uh, Darren Rabinovich. So we had the French guy, the Mexican guy, the Jewish guy, and the guy from Thailand. That was our little group. And we all gave ourselves nicknames. So where was that shot? I mean, that's a, that was a big movie. You must have had a, a reasonably a reasonable sized uh, facility for that. Basically, we got an offer to go shoot it at Kerner Optical, ILM. So we got to rent the ILM model shop. So I got to work in the island model shop because Henry had rented it. So it was basically mine to do whatever I wanted with. So I had the whole model shop to myself. And uh, again, you, you, you I walked into the island model shop and they're like, hey, this is where you're gonna work. And I'm looking at the walls and it's every possible industrial light and magic model everywhere. And they're like, uh, and, and they're like, oh, you can go up there. That's all our, 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 if you need some model making bits, just go on the second floor over there and just, you know, pick out what you want. So they had a, this the mezzanine filled with cardboard boxes and anything you could find. Like tidbits from every single movie. You know, you'd pick out a chunk and it was probably a piece of an X-Wing fighter. You know? And um, so we worked there for about a year making all the creatures from the life aquatic and i had a friend that i'd met at m5 uh, called eric dunn who was a uh, genius mold maker and artist and he was working at this place called douglas and sturgis which would sell all the products to all of the model shops in san francisco and edge innovation were the guys who were doing 
um, they were they did all the big creatures, the big uh, fish. Uh, they did uh, Free Willy, and they did all these. And they were using this material called dragon skin, and because it was a soft silicone, and but before that, all the other silicones were. You couldn't find the soft silicone to work with. You had to work these these soft polyurethane that would degrade and melt. And that's why all the the characters on Nightmare for Christmas, their hands melted away over the years. And that's why Free Willy melted after a year. And it was this toxic sludge. It would lose its 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 integrity. So uh Eric introduced me to Dragon Skin, which is this platinum cure silicone that you can tint, that's super stretchable, that's unbelievable, and that's basically, I, I, I used it for, uh, I used it for the Life Aquatic, but the incredible part about it is that you could paint it inside the mold. So I made these clear molds, Eric basically like engineered all this, and, and he, he used this silicone called Soda Clear, and you could see through it, and so I had all my artists paint like an animation cell on the inside of the mold so the mold was clear and you could see what you were doing because you were looking through the mold with a negative shape just like animation cells so we did these magnificent color schemes like uh, there was a paisley octopus and it was all painted by hand on the negative shape of the mold on the inside then we closed the mold and backfill it and we ended up making just these absolutely beautiful creatures and this massive, you know, nine foot long shark that Dan has and this one, maybe you can cut that out. Uh, <laughs> this massive nine foot shark, all out of this dragon skin material. And uh, it was just like, it was, they were magnificent. They moved beautifully. It was so much fun. And that took about a year. And uh, so that introduced me to all these new materials and these techniques of using silicone, flexible silicone, platinum cure silicones, dyeing them, which is all these techniques that I used years later on Henry's movies. But one of the greatest moments that they over there, if you want to geek out, is Lorne Peterson was there, right? And one evening, it was probably on a Friday night, he's like, oh, hey, Martin, do you mind if I put some models in the middle of the model shop right here, you know? Because we had all the tables, and, and he was like, "I'm like, oh, go for it." So he 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 wheels in the Star Destroyer from Star Wars, the giant at at that stumbles and falls in the snow, and the uh, speeder bike from Return of the Jedi, the full size one. The full and he size leaves him one. In, the full <laughs> size one. He leaves him in the middle of the freaking room. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, Monday, probably Smithsonian was going to pick him up. So all weekend I was working, you know, right there next to the Star Destroyer from Star Wars. And what a backdrop and, to have, jeez. <laughs> I mean, and I was like, ah, oh, I mean, it was... It's you like know. you completed the circuit at that point somehow, like, you know, from the, that little spark as a kid and then you're in the room being inspired by it as you work. That's great. Yeah. I, I was just magnificent. But like seeing the ad, ad there and seeing the, the Star Destroyer, I mean, you could see the scrapes on the camera on the belly of it. You know, it's the opening shot of Star Wars. It was there. It's like, and it's big. Wow. You know, I was like, well, that was really a moment. You know, you get to see that. It's, it's, it's such a big iconic moment. pieces. Yeah. 
I mean, yeah, the ultimate. I mean, I don't know. It's, you know. Yeah, it doesn't get much better than that. Well, it doesn't, it get, doesn't get much better. better. Yeah, it's like, you know. And then just that shop was just so beautiful, everything in it. Now it's when after they sold ILM, after Lucas sold ILM, now it's, I think it's a, it's a, a garage or some. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. It was really sad. But anyway, it was just, you know, the stuff that was in there. Like going for the first time into Tippett Studio and getting a chance to explore and going into ILM Model Shop and getting a chance to explore. Those two things were really like, it was, it was pretty incredible. And the, I'd say at the end of, uh, of uh, the end of uh, Life Aquatic, right? Uh, John Berg, uh, who was an ILM guy, had written a book. I was like, no, no, he was, John Berg was really good friends with, with um, Raryhausen. So Raryhausen was there to sign his book. And he'd just been to Pixar. And he'd just been to ILM and seen all of the, the you know, all the computer guys and computer stuff, right? So Tom Sedamon told John Berg, as really good friends, he said, oh, you should have Harry Allison go see Martin because he's doing some stop motion stuff. <laughs> so I'm at my desk at lunch and I hear, oh, hello, hello. And that's Harry Allison. And then like, oh, hi, how are you doing? And he's like, oh, so what are you doing here? And I'm like, oh, here you want to see some footage? And I showed him all the footage and... And I showed him that, you know, and he's like, oh, you know, I, I made a, an octopus one, but it had six tentacles. And then I showed him everything. And yeah, we, we just hang out for an hour looking at stuff, footage. And, and, and I showed him all the dragon skin. He was impressed. And and I was, as a challenge, I was sculpting a, a face under a microscope with a human hair that I carved into a, a point. So I was just wanted to challenge myself. And I... I I, I, the eyes were like tiny grains of silica. So I told Larry and I said, I think I'm sculpting like the small, I'm trying to sculpt like the smallest face possible. So I have him look in the microscope and he looks at me and he goes, are you insane? <laughs> and then I, I tell him, I said, well, you know, also I think that I'm, I just made the largest stop motion puppet ever built. And he's like, well, I made a brontosaurus that was like four feet long. And I said, well, I'll show you. So I walk him to the uh, to the stage where we've got the shark. And you know, the shark is nine feet long. It's probably 150 pounds. And uh, you can put your head in his mouth. And he sees the shark and he looks at me and he goes, Are you insane? <laughs> <laughs> so it was really sweet. And then, and then as he, you know, we chatted and as he's leaving, right? Uh, and he was there with his wife and his, his agent. So as he's leaving, you know, we're saying goodbye. And, and, and I see him roll down the window of the car. And he, he, he leans out the window with his fist in the air. And he goes, Viva Stop Motion! <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. That, I was like, yeah, if oh. you'd have died at that point, you would. You would have I been was happy. like, yeah. oh yeah, I was like, that's <laughs> like, I got, I got Harry Allison to say if he was stop motion. That's great. You know, <laughs> that should be the title of your book. <laughs> I know. I was like, that was so sweet. I was like, so happy. You know, and he passed away maybe like I don't know, five years later or something. Like yeah, that. that must have been such a cool moment for him to see the kind of development and the culmination of the, you know, the techniques that he brought to the forefront for so so many of us. I mean, that yeah. must have been pretty cool for him as it was for you, I would imagine. 
Yeah, I know it was it was fantastic. The the the, the whole thing calling me insane was like uh, the greatest compliment I ever got. <laughs> Definitely. I, I was lucky enough to see some of his stuff in Berlin a few years back. Uh, there's an exhibition out there. And you know, just being in the in the same room as that stuff, you just is is just mind blowing. It is mind blowing. It, it's 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 I mean the way I see it is that those items, those those pieces are to us they're they're not they're not physical. They're psychological. They represent reality. They're real objects. They're it's a real Medusa. It's a real Millennium Falcon. You know, it, it transcends uh, it transcends the object. So when you see it as an object, it, it's kind of a shock. It's like I'm 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 seeing a god. I'm seeing a representation of like something that was divine for me, but I'm seeing it physically. It's it's sometimes disappointing. Because you're like, oh, it's, it's you know the magic is gone. That's the first time I saw the uh, the Smithsonian Star Wars exhibit when I saw all the models. I, I was I was shocked by how how crude some of them are. How like you know they're pieces of plastic glued together, and I'm like, oh, that's a gun turret from a tank. Oh, this is just these are hubcaps. You know the little star the balls that fire the little floating ball that Luke uh, trains with, and it's got these silver little parts, and they're, they're like just hubcaps. And it's like, oh damn! But that's the magic of movie making. It's like you can make stuff that's just, you know. And I did that a lot in model making. I, I put I put random stuff here and there, knowing that uh, we on one of Dan's movies on on Fanorama, I put a, a a vacuum cleaner in the background as one of the buildings, you know, and it passed perfectly. You know, it was like it was like a nice old red vacuum cleaner there is something about that though i, I mentioned this about star wars some years ago i made a, a sort of behind the scenes doco thing on star wars and just having those physical objects that were from our world all right they were combined into different things it adds a sort of legitimacy to them to the to the world we're looking at somehow some sort of deep-seated um familiarity we kind of we know that world even though we don't know it if you know what i mean yeah so yeah it's interesting it gives us a it, connection it gives us a connection, but it's it's almost like, you know, Dan has a lot of props, and like actually physically seeing the props, yeah, it, it's it's weird. It's 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 a combination of excitement and almost like, oh, that's it. I saw it. Now it's over. Mm, mm. Yeah, I was out in LA a couple of years ago. Um, I helped. I did a bit of consultancy work for them on um, on prop culture and. Dan kept saying, oh, you've got to come around my place and, and check out the, the collection and everything. We never got around to it. And I bitterly disappointed. The, inv the invite's still open, but, you know, uh, the thought oh, of yeah, seeing see. some of those items, like, you know, the Blade Runner gun and stuff. I mean, but, you know, I think there's also a factor that it, if you own it or not, <laughs> owning it is a different ballgame. Having it, like, I have a few props that I, I love the show Penny Dreadful. And, uh, I, there was an auction uh, a couple of years ago, well, more than a couple of years ago, uh, in Ireland where they auctioned off all the pieces. And I don't think a lot of people knew about it. And so I bought some of the, the, the most beautiful pieces from that auction for, for you know, pennies on the dollar. And I, there's a scene where uh, there's this massive painting, or ever, ever uh, um, what's her name? Uh, the main girl in it, uh, Evergreen. Is, is is reading uh, the tarot cards and this massive painting 
like it looks like a turner of these ships at sea burning it's huge it's magnificent there's a comment about the souls on those ships so i got that gigantic painting and it's sitting at my shop and i got it's one of my prized things i'm just so freaking you know it's just it's gorgeous but because it's an object that's beautiful too you know if yeah, I, yeah. when i watch the show and i'm like that's my painting i have it <laughs> <laughs> i mean i've got a couple of like storyboards that are you know they're just xerox copies but they they were used on productions you know and they've got little scribbles on them i think i've got like one from uh raiders of the lost ark which shows like a nazi guy kind of standing there you know and the lights blasting through him and feeding out to the other nazis when they all drop to their knees and all that stuff and um somebody's just drawn with a biro like to sort of uh, amplify how much light should be coming out of this chest. Just and they've done oh, yeah. it right there on on the the set or, or ILM or wherever they were, and to me that just adds value to it. You know, it oh, just, of course, to the I mean, fact yeah. that somebody's annotated it in in some way. Well, I mean, having that, I mean, you know, there's iconic movies. I mean, having a, a, anything that's connected to to Nightmare to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, yeah, it's magical. I mean, you know what it is. They kind of become religious icons in a way, you know, and it's 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 bizarre because no one really should own a religious icon. You know, I'm I'm not religious, but I mean, I can I can I can tell that you know religious icons would have you know great value, but it, yeah, it's a bizarre. There's the sentimental value. There's the iconographic value. There's the historicity, you know. If you ever read the the Men in the High Castle, there's a whole chapter on history. Yes, yeah, yeah, I have done. Yeah, Philip K. Dick. Yeah, and then he he talks about the value of historicity, and and, and anyway, it's a whole whole chapter on it. But there's the sentimental value. Like the, I have a, a few things that are that I, I have sentimental connections to it. Like for my wedding, Henry gave me a original uh, drawing from Nightmare with Sally and and uh, uh, Jack. It's the moment we're about to kiss. And he, he signed it and wrote it on, wrote on the back a little message and it's framed. And to me, that's like, you know, I, it's more than a prop at that point. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So how did you, how did you end up getting on, uh, working on Coraline then? What was the, that was just your connection to, to Henry and you were the guy for the job? When I was working with Henry on the Life Aquatic, we were at this place in San Francisco and it was after one of those, you know, it was a few years after the uh, the tech boom, you know, but there was a place called Reardon Studios, which was this this high tech shop where you know that like you know TVs coming out of the walls. And it was like it was a leftover from that high tech boom, but they had a rapid prototyping machine there, uh, a, a Z Corp like uh, one of those color printers, and I, I remember with Henry we were looking at the machine and he said, oh you know. Maybe we could use that machine for uh, doing replacement faces, and I was like, "Yeah, all right, maybe." Yeah, I didn't. Well, I really like this. Okay, and I forgot about it. And uh, so after the end of Life Aquatic, you know, I went my own way, and I uh, I opened up a shop in San Francisco, and I did uh, I got a ton of stuff there. Like I was doing consulting, model making, props. Uh, I, I molded a bunch of uh, giant flower pots, built flower pots. This is all like, you know, great work. You know, it wasn't movie stuff, but it was still fun, fun work. And uh, 
I did a lot of miniature stuff, and and uh, Darren, who was I had him at the shop. He had part of the shop. He told me about uh, he was working for the Art Institute at one point, and they had a rapid prototyping machine at the Art Institute, but that was a lot higher end. And I was doing these little miniature uh, tanks and airplanes and ships for this 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 toy company, I think Twenty First Century Toys. And uh, he said, "Well, you should look into rapid prototyping instead." So <clears throat> I went there and I met with Brian McLean, who was the head of the model shop at the Art Institute. And uh, I saw the machine. And uh, at that point, right around there, Henry had called me to do some modeling for a Moon Girl, which was a short that he had done right, basically in, in Oregon. And uh, he was telling me about that he had a big show coming up. And... I somehow it reminded me of of the rapid prototyping and I don't know how I, I, I basically I said well maybe we could just use this new machine to do rapid prototyping faces so on my own I just I, I modeled a, a, a Jack Skellington face on my own and because I was at that point I was I was back into CG and I was modeling a ton of shit and I got uh, Brian to print three of them and, uh, you know, I know I was, Brian was making money on the side off of this because I was paying him for everything. And, uh, and I can say that it's all right. He, uh, so I got these three heads printed. I, I, Aaron, my friend Aaron Core that I met at, at, at Tippet on Starship Trooper, I got him, I hired him to do some, to, to set up a, a a stand to do some animation and I shot these three faces of Jack Skellington doing a you know a smile and they registered perfectly and they worked beautifully and I was like oh damn that's interesting so I was basically at that point Henry wanted me to work because you know we had a great time on Life Aquatic he wanted me to become part of the team for uh, uh, Coraline and I had this in the back of my head and we had these puppet summits. So everybody in the team gets together. So um, I met Henry a couple of times before and he said, all right, I want you to work on Coraline, you know, do the puppets, etc. We'll have a puppet maker, but I want you to work with, with them. I want you to do this. I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll do it. And we had this big meeting, the puppet summit. And during the puppet summit, I was at the table. It was in Oregon. You know, everybody flew us over there. And I basically, I said it at that point in the meeting. I said, well, I'd love to try to basically print uh, faces, rapid prototype. And everybody at the table was like, no, no, that's stupid. No, we can't do this. No, 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 no. And Henry is the only one that said, yeah, yeah, you try it. You do it. I want you to do it. And I was like, cool. All right. Awesome. So uh, I had the scan of Coraline that Damon had sculpted Coraline. There was a scan of it. So I had it. So I, uh, I modeled a version of Coraline and, uh, I did, I printed, uh, I got Brian to print me 30 faces and, uh, I had, uh, it was, I'd rake the mouth so she would go through expressions and, uh, wait, my dog is barking. Hey, come on. I'm telling a story here. So, uh. It, it was, and I, I spray painted it gray. I made a really, really basic registration system with just like a uh, um, a, a square KNS stock. 
and I made these 30 faces of Coraline. And I still have the, the animation of it. I still have the film. And uh, I went to Portland and I went to the studio, which was um, the old uh, Will Winton Studios. And because Phil Knight had bought it. And they set me up in a room in the back, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah, you can animate over here on this frame grabber. And I took the 30 faces, a gray box, and I, I placed them and I, I shot the, this little movie with 30 frames. And every meme was perfect. It was like, she went through all her expression, eyes closing, you know, blowing. And it, it was like, I never knew before that point that it would work. And it was like flawless. It was like, damn, that's it. It works. And I, so I showed Henry and he's like, yep, it works. It's great. Let's do it. Let's make this into a character. Let's, let's do it. So... I was I was bullshitting most of the time here. I was like I I I, I was like it's not gonna work. I'm just you know maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. But I wasn't really looking to to go work in Oregon. And at that point, I was like, oh shit, what they got myself into. So I I was working still for Phil at the time. I was building these giant puppets for uh, Spiderwick Chronicles, these life-size versions of the characters because I did a lot of sculpting for Spiderwick Chronicles with Grits and with Miguel. We sculpted a, a ton of characters uh, for, uh, like, Phil had hired me to just give me a bunch of drawings. I did a bunch of drawings, a bunch of characters, and just to explore the characters. And I was building these live-action size puppets out of dragon skin to put on set. And so I was I was doing two jobs at once and I was going to Oregon for like a week, going back to San Francisco for a week, going back to Oregon for a week and setting up a shop in Oregon, getting the machines bought. And at that point, I asked Brian if he could manage the, uh, the purchasing of the machines. So Brian got us the machines he, through the school. So we got these these uh, object machines and... Uh, I like a hired a modeler and so I got him to start animating the face and nobody like I was really believing this would work uh, the, the puppet supervisor they got from England she didn't think it was gonna work everybody was kind of afraid and we were going to do we were gonna do one shot to test it out which was uh, Coraline saying the line well if I'm a water witch then where's the secret well? It was just one line. Well, if I'm a water witch, where's the secret well? So we decided, we made all the faces for that one shot. We got them painted. I worked a lot on the registration, like how to figure it out. But I used the knowledge that I gained from James and the Giant Peach for the magnet placement. The same magnets. I use the same magnets. These little one-eighth scale, one-eighth uh, inch magnets. And we got all the faces, we did a bunch of tests and it, it was working. It was like the animation, like it was really subtle. It was, it was, you could hardly see the difference between one face and the next. So at that point we we're like, well, we got to label all these faces. So we labeled all these faces. At that point I hired Brian to basically come and be my producer to help set up everything. Brian McLean. And I asked him to just, you know, get set up all the computers, uh, be the producer, be, you know, just do all of the the paperwork stuff so i didn't have to do any of it 
he, he was a supervisor. He was not a computer modeler. He was just basically a good, a good organizer, great organizer, great producer. So he started hiring other people. We started setting up his shop and we got the Coraline shot done. All the faces done, brought him on set. And at that point I, I, I designed an eye rig for Coraline that had, that had, um, her eyes can move in all directions, but she could also, she had an upper and a lower uh, lid, an upper lid that can, that can would be able to close in front of the eye and change angle. And I did this in the computer. It was this really intricate little eye rig that I still use today. And uh, they did the shot and they finalized it and they showed it. And what was amazing at that point is that you could read what she said on her lips without the sound. Wow. And everybody was like, okay. An innovation like that, though, it must have changed the industry from that point on. Yeah. I mean, it was like a game changer, 100%. Because you could read her lips. You could read her lips. I don't think that anybody had ever been able to read the lips of a stop motion character before. And which was, which was also, you know, like it was, it was because of the animators they animated her perfectly it was beautiful it's just a great shot and it was a film uh, travis knight i think animated the shot and travis knight the son of phil knight is a phenom animator i mean no one no one could animate as fast as he did and as well as he did i mean you know there's people who describe who describe michelangelo uh carving marble and uh, Michelangelo didn't let anybody see see him carve marble. He, he he hid it, you know. And I think he did the David when he was like in his twenties. But it was a legend that these two guys went to see him. They, they spied on him. And you know, when you carve marble, you 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 have to be careful on how much uh, stone you break. But apparently, he was going so fast, he was taking huge chunks of stone because he knew so well how the stone was going to break. Well, Travis the same. He can like. Uh, you can animate so quickly. He knows where the you can. See, I think you think you can see where this puppet's going. So he was he was you know had been animating for long, and he was teaching guys who were animating for twenty years. They were like asking him advice. So he he animated that shot, and it was absolutely beautiful and perfect. And at that point, Henry was like, "All right, also Coraline is going to be this," and uh, he's like, "And this other character should be uh, rapid prototyping." And this other character, and this one, 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 and this one. And suddenly I had like, you know, Coraline, Bobinski, mother, YB, other mother, other mother, two, other mother, three, the cat, Spink, or was Force one of the two, Spink or Forcible, all the mice. Uh, and then suddenly they were like, well, so your rapid prototyping machine, it can make characters' faces, but can it make props? And I was like, all right, it can make props. So Tom Proust, who was the model maker on, on James the Giant Peach and Nightmare, was the, the head of the model shop there. So Tom Proust was like, hey, you know what? I want, like, can you print, like, 40 forks and plates and fruits? And can you print windows and door handles and doorknobs and keys and you know uh, everything so we started printing like thousands and thousands of objects so 
then we bought a second machine and a third machine and a fourth machine. So it became like a, a production house just to produce every little thing. Uh, and then basically it was like, well, we have a VW bug to, to do. Can we print the VW bug? So we got blueprints, we got CG models from, from Volkswagen and printed the VW bug. And then we had this, 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 this uh, praying mantis chariot to print. So we printed that and there were all the chairs and there were, and then uh, Henry at one point came up to me and he's like, well, we have these, these scenes where there's water. She's under the shower. Do you think you can print water? So I'm like, all right, well, we'll find some clear, clear resin. And I have Craig Dowsett, one of my guys, like do an animation sequence of water coming out the shower. And I printed all these little, these little water and I, I covered them with crystal clear to make them glossy. And then we animated this, the shower head coming out. And we, we, since we had a digital version of Coraline, we could create the digital interaction between the water and Coraline and that matched exactly so we had water and then there's a little bug at one point climbing on top of a coffee cup so yeah I made a little replacement sequence the first little replacement stop motion sequence in rapid prototype so we had this little bug that was crawling on the ground so you just could replace it and I had a little magnet underneath the bug so it could go up the coffee mug because the coffee mug was a little metal tube and that looked fucking that looked amazing and it just kept going and kept going. And, uh, and then at one point, they needed like smaller scale characters. So I printed smaller scale character, molded a little tiny Coraline at my desk and cast a tiny Coraline out of dragon skin and made a tiny Coraline that was maybe two inches tall with a tiny replacement face. And I molded it and I did everything. I put little wires in it and we had a minuscule, you know, minuscule replacement like animatable Coraline and then you see her in one shot when the house is getting destroyed and you see her holding the cat and that's a tiny little Coraline and then there's a running Coraline and I was like and he was like can you make a replacement running Coraline and we'll just you know so I made a replacement running Coraline and then he said you know the there's George Powell who was an animator who did replacement animation and uh you know, everybody's a big fan of George Powell. Tubby the tuba got an Oscar for Tubby the tuba, and he used to do replacement animation. So you'd carve each little characters. So we had this giant mouse circus to do, and I remember at that point they wanted to do it digital, and uh, I think they had this company, Giant Killer Robot. I think was going to do it. And they bid it, and then I was like, Henry, let's do a homage to George Powell. Let's make all these mouse mice. Let's make him and let's make replacement animation. So that was a that was another like uh, you know troubling thing for a lot of CG guys because they wanted to work and uh, and Henry was like, "Fuck it, let's do it stop motion." So I animated this sequence. Uh, I got my animators to animate a little mouse sequence, and we, we went over it with Henry. So there was a lot of squash and stretch, and I engineered these little mice so they could be, come apart and. Uh, since there was a lot of them, instead of printing all of them, I engineered them so they could all be molded and cast. So I got all these pieces and I sent them to my shop in San Francisco that I still had. And I, my guys over there mold and cast all these mice. And we probably produced maybe like six, 7,000 parts of these little mice. And I had my friend Eric do it because he, we cast them all in color. So they didn't have to be painted. And then we assembled them and everything is, was at a really complex numbering system. And with magnets, so you could remove the legs and place the body on top of another set of legs. So there was a, 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 it was a very complex 
setup and we had to, to make sure that everything worked and that's we had one guy animate that whole mouse circus and they're all replacement and it just it was it's beautiful i mean it really worked magnificently well that whole film looks amazing it really does i, I think i remember at the time seeing it i did i didn't know anything about it and it, it was just i was like i'm gonna go to the cinema and i went and i chose that film with my girlfriend and i had an argument with a friend a week later who was convinced that it was all cgi he was absolutely convinced that it would was done to make it look like it was stop motion a little bit, but it was all CGI. I mean, there are CGI elements in there, right? But no, none, none, none not at one all. single, not at all, not one single CGI element that whole mouse circus. And there was uh, there's a little blimp at, at the beginning that crashes and it forms, it explodes, and all the mice form the word Coraline. And that was the same. That was all painted by hand. All these little, like you know. And we put them in a tray so you could see each frame, basically. Like, you'd have the setup with all these different mice. And none of it was, just, it was all all printed. Every 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 inch of that thing was printed. So you, you won that bet. <laughs> well, I mean, what is it about you then? What attributes have you got that have enabled you to have this kind of, you know, extended lifespan in the film industry, but doing different disciplines some of which people would stick to for their entire career you clearly jumped in with two feet um, and was willing to diversify when computer modeling came up and the face replacement stuff you're an engineer you're an innovator i guess ultimately yeah i mean it, it's it's only because i love it that's it yeah it's, yeah it's yeah. fun i mean it's fun that's it i sacrificed the financial stability for the fun that's it i mean i could have you know i like i, I fairly smart i know mathematics and physics i could have been a banker i could have been i wanted to be a surgeon as a kid and i i love i still love you give me a scalpel and a piece of meat and i'm happy but i you know i i throughout all these 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 jobs you know a lot of us get get cuts and the moment somebody gets cut i'm there just just like all right let's see how bad it is and let's see if we can you know see what you need you know i'm i'm i love biology i love physics i love that but I, you know, I love movies more. That's it. It's all, it's all for the fun. It's all creating objects, you know, and I still do today. I'm still making it. I still make things all the time, all the time. It's just, you either choose <clears throat> stability or you choose fun. And I, you know, my parents were, my dad's a photographer and my mom's an artist. So when I was a kid, they were like, do whatever you want, you know, blow shit up as long as you don't lose any fingers. You know, my dad like handed me when I was like 11, this 22 rifle and say, you want to go shoot your models? Go for it. Here's a box of ammunition. So you have no, none of your Kenner Star Wars figures <laughs> remaining? Oh, no, uh, Kenner's, that, that's, 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 you know, those were, were sacred. There's a, I still have all the, oh, I still have all the guns that are associated with them. I still have, they're all, they're all perfectly fine. There was, I could have never touched a Star Wars figure, ever. <laughs> So this was a uh, melting little army men, was it, and stuff like little that? Little army men, Tamiya tanks, you know, airplanes. No, the, but the one thing about making those mice, you know, the one cool thing about it. Now, part of my pitch was that, we'll each everybody on on the crew will have one at the end as a crew gift. Nice. So we made everybody. We made like four hundred and fifty crew gifts, and everybody got a mouse, in a glass jar, with a beautiful stand that I modeled 
of the of the circus floor with all these mice around the stand with Coraline crew. So everybody got one. And Henry got the uh the 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 conductor mouse on the ball. <laughs> and we should say that you were rewarded as well for that. You were... Yeah, it, it was it was uh, so the idea is I pitched it at Leica. Part of my pitch at Leica was that, you know, I told him you do this, you're going to get a technical Oscar at one point because this is going to be the big innovation. And they were like, okay, great, let's do it. It was part of the pitch to, to Phil Knight and, uh, and all these guys. And part of the pitch was also that, you know, we would use all of this for toys, to make toys. And it was funny because I was in a big meeting with Phil Knight where basically I, I got to present everything. Uh, the stop motion, the, 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 this new technology, you know. And so Phil Knight's the dad. And I remember he had his, uh, everybody there was like the CFO was there. And I, I, I pitched everything. And then he leaned over to a producer basically to ask. I asked, what did he ask you? And uh, he asked the, the producer, who's this guy? <laughs> she said it. And then afterwards, he, he, you know, he used my name and he said, all right, well, this is it. This is what we have to do, you know. You know, who's got the rights for the toys? Do we have the rights for the toys? And they didn't have, they, they'd basically given up the, the rights to the toys to NECA. They couldn't produce their own toys. And he got super pissed off. Uh, yeah, it was scary to see a billionaire get pissed off, tell you. <laughs> but anyway, so we used all the computer models to make the toys at the end for Coraline. So that was a whole, a whole fight to get toys made that looked good. So there's all these little tiny figures of Coraline, these little kits, and those are all the computer models. Which I guess changed the toy industry in a way because I'm sure it became very common then to make sure you had scans of all of your actors for live action movies and, and things like that to make toys of. Yeah, I mean, I think that the toy industry was probably using rapid prototyping at the time. I'm not sure, you know. But probably because they were starting to get really beautiful stuff. But yeah, but now it's like it's it's common, you know. But uh, the, the, so this was uh, so this was Coraline, right? So I kept working on stuff at Coraline. I mean, I kept working at like uh, we 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 did so much stuff with the rapid prototyping, and to a point where the Coraline was done, and we were moving on to Paranorman. And at that point, I told Brian, I said, well we have to move to the next step. And uh, I had done at that point, a Merrick Cheney told me about color printing. And I said to Brian, I said, well, we should switch to color printing. And he was like, I don't I remember pretty clearly at the time. He was like, he was a little bit worried about it because Henry didn't like the color printing because I had done a Coraline face I color printed a Coraline face, which I still have. That's the first color printing that we did. Because Merrick had printed it for me. And uh, it looked beautiful. I had translucency. And at that point, I pitched using that because we can get translucency through the ears. So we did a test of uh, a zombie. I was doing a bunch of zombie tests for Paranormal. I, was do I did a, a silicone zombie face, and we did a test of a zombie, a painted zombie, just howling, like it was like five frames with the color printing. I still have that test and it was beautiful. It worked like perfectly well. But at that point, um, 
there was some internal struggle inside of Laika and uh, basically Henry left because I think there was some I can't remember what exactly happened but Henry left and uh, I, at that point when Henry left I was like you know, you know I, I didn't want to work on any other movie than Henry's movie I, 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 I would have worked on Paranorman but I'll be honest with you after spending that long in Oregon I, I was kind of getting I was getting a little depressed by the weather mm. Mm. And one day we went to lunch to Snoop Dogg's uncle's uh, barbecue shack. <laughs> and it took us an hour to get there. And on my way back to the shop, I looked out the window and I could see all these places that were retirement homes that had names like, you know, Shady Acres and Golden Leaves. And and I got, it was raining and it was cold. And then I was like, I was so depressed. So I called Henry and I said, hey, you know, if you want me, I'm out. And he's like, yeah, you're my first hire. Come on. And I basically quit. And I left Brian in charge. And, uh, oh, yeah, the first guy I hired over there, was, his name was Michael Fortner. Michael Fortner was the one who did uh, the first modeling of Coraline. Uh, and he'd just come off the Ant Bully, which was done in Texas. And then he got a lot of, the, the, of his friends from the Ant Bully to come over. So we had a crew from the end bully to do all the CG animation. So then Henry called me and then he said, Pixar wants to do a stop motion movie because John Lasseter told me, this is Henry talking. He said, John, John, John Lasseter told me that when he saw Coraline, it was the first time that he could emotionally connect to a stop motion character because she felt so real. So he offered to Henry to do a stop motion movie. So then at that point, I was so sick of Portland, which is great, but like, you know, 10 days without any sun sometimes. It's yeah, just, yeah. It's too uh, yeah. Much. I, I've been brought up in England. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was brought up in Paris and it's like, I didn't, I didn't need the gray skies that much. So he said, come to San Francisco. We're going to set up a shop in San Francisco. So I came and I spent a year on pre-production and I did, uh, I wrote a lot for Henry. I... I just basically did a lot of synopsises and at the same time I was working on, on, on doing some characters for pitches. We worked on three pitches and two pitches. And one of the pitch was uh, the uh, extraordinary adventures of Edward Tulane, the, the, Edward, the incredible journey of Edward Tulane, which was written by uh, what's the name, De Camillo. Uh, and it was this absolutely heartbreaking beautiful story about a porcelain rabbit that um is alive but he can't move and it's his vision of his journey over like 50 years through the american depression and it was and he's got this all inner life where he's a well that was part of henry's story idea that he added to the book that he was a, a chinese warrior so i made this four foot tall porcelain rabbit that was uh i made a real porcelain rabbit like a porcelain face with glass eyes that i had a, a guy that was a specialist who did glass eyes for for veterans uh, david Owen, well, another incredible artist and i made this four foot tall rabbit and i got a thousand year old chinese uh you know dress that a friend of mine gave me who's a fashion designer I cut it up 
I cast this rabbit with, with bronze and wooden parts, and I made this four feet tall, animatable, posable, stop motion rabbit with, uh, a, I sculpted a jade uh, lance to it. And it was the most beautiful thing that I ever done. I hired uh, Grits to sculpt the head, my friend Holly to, to help me on the costume. And this thing was just absolutely like, I'll send you pictures. It's, it's stunning. And that was the pitch. And then John Lasseter, when we pitched it to him, basically he said, I don't get it. And that was over. So then Henry pitched uh, the Shadow King and that went through. And the Shadow King is the project that we worked on for the next three years in San Francisco. And that's where I got the, to do a lot of, uh, another whole set of R&D by basically making silicone clothing for the puppets. And that ended up working like just incredibly well. And we made like silicone shorts, silicone jeans, silicone sweaters, and it's, you, can't, you can't tell the difference. What happened? What happened to the Shadow King? Well, I remember seeing the, the you know the buzz about it, and I've seen a few retrospective looks back about the the greatest animation that was never made. So we worked about, I think it, I worked a year in pre-production and over two and a half years in of shooting, and uh, it was amazing because the the design was the character design was incredible. It was just like Coraline. It was it was, it was very eclectic and bizarre and beautiful. And uh, we built giant sets. It was set. It was a story set in the '80s. Uh, two brothers who are orphans who are uh, discovered that they have an uncle who has a magical lamp who can create living shadows. And and Hap, the younger brother, has these gigantic fingers, like gigantic, and so he can make these incredible shadows. And it was like a ghost story inside the Dakota building in New York. I mean, and it had like elements of New York. They were great. They were like, you know, punk rockers in the street. There were like pimps and prostitutes. It was, it was like old taxi cabs. It was a, would have been a masterpiece. And, uh, <clears throat> I think it was Disney at that point had come out with, uh, the Lone Ranger and, uh, that other Pete, that other uh, uh, John Carter of Mars, which were two massive bombs. And they went around and they looked at every production that was like, you know, over 30 million bucks to see if they should just scrap them. So I, I know that when they heard about the Shadow King there, like the Disney execs were like, well, what's that? They didn't even know what it was. So we got scrapped, basically. But it would have been so, I mean, it was, to me, it would have been so interesting. It was such a interesting, different story. It was a, it was an original story that Henry wrote. It was like it was a period stop motion period piece in New York. I mean, yeah. You know. How naive of Disney to not see that they've just bombed on an unoriginal story in The Lone Ranger, an unoriginal story in John Carter from Mars, but then been the one original story that's innovative and interesting. Yeah. But I think it was also, I think Henry also, yeah, he had to face the, the Pixar Brain Trust, which, you know, was a bunch of writers. So I remember kind of like, it was, it was a lot of like, well, we like the story, but we don't like the characters. And it's like, well, we don't like the characters, but we like the story. Well, it was like going back and forth, back and forth. I mean, you know, 
they should have left him alone and just trusted him to, to do this movie. And they would have had a cult film on their hands. Cult, 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 cult. Everybody would have been like, whoa, blown away. The characters were beautiful. I mean, the, um, the puppets were great. I, 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 I spent so much time making sure that, that there was no more seam lines in the faces. Because that was another thing, you know, like, usually we did, we did full faces. But I remember on Coraline at one point, I was in a meeting with Anthony Scott. And, you know, when you do faces for replacement animation, you have to have an upper, uh, you have to, you have different upper brows. You have all these different expressions with the upper brows. But so for each different upper brow expression, you have to have a phoneme for the mouth that is associated with that one. So during a meeting with Anthony, we're chatting and I asked Anthony, I told him, well, what if we split the face in half? And he said, yeah, it would work fine. And I was like, I just raised my hand. I said, well, Andrew, maybe we split the faces in half. Since we have rapid prototyping, we can get seam lines that are really tight. And that's how we got the, the face split in half. That's why all the characters in all the stop motion movies has, you know, split faces. That was the first time we tried. And there was a big challenge at the end of Coraline because I wanted to keep the split. I wanted to keep the line across the face. Because I said it's like core line. She's got a line. Let it get, leave the line on the character. But they do basically chose to digitally remove it. That's why none of the faces have. And in Animalisa, you can still see the, the split in the face. Because they didn't have the budget to remove it. So anyway, uh, where was I? I got lost in the split face. Well, yeah, so on Henry's Cinderbiter, we made sure that you couldn't see the split line anymore on the face that it was the, the that the printing was so tight that when you put two faces together the seam disappeared so that was the big challenge on it and we were successful we had characters that you know you, you pretty, pretty much the seam was like invisible so it was really cool but then we you know the whole movie got canned and that's it and years later i was and you asked me to go to, to the disney archives with him to go destroy all the puppets. So years later, I went there and a pair of scissors and I shredded all the costumes, got rid of, took out all the armatures and destroyed all the puppets. For what reason? Well, because it was they were throwing shit out at Disney and it was like they wanted to just, you know, get rid of all the, they were destroying a lot of stuff. And then Henry wanted- That's so sad. Yeah, but Henry got the, basically, I think he, he made a deal with them to, to uh, be able to reuse the armatures. Right, okay. So he got to reuse the armatures on uh, on the Wendell and Wild that he's doing right now. Well, at least some good came out of it. It's, it's such a shame that that's the that's the final moment for objects like that that would have been loved by people, regardless of the fact that the film was never released. They, you know, they're cult cult items in a way because I've seen the pictures, you know, online, and I've seen the the greatest film that never got made, or you know, the greatest stop motion that never got finished, and all that stuff. So. Yeah, it's a real shame that companies feel the need to destroy things. But yeah, no, it's. But we had a great time working there. It was it was nice because we were in San Francisco, not too far from the old Skellington, just up the street from it. Good restaurant. Uh, yeah, great restaurant. It was it was a mission. So we just go out in the mission every day. You know, I got to live in San Francisco again, which was nice. You know, I play. I would play poker with the 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 writer like about twice twice a week at my friend's restaurant in North Beach in the cellar of an Italian restaurant with a bunch of cash. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this, was fun. this was 
<laughs> Those are fun days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was fun days. And what are you doing now? What's your what's keeping you busy at the moment? Is it the writing and So now what I'm doing is let me see. Uh what am I doing? I am writing for a f- company that has a um this show called Miraculous Ladybug. Uh, that's yes. a big show my daughter, on Yeah, my daughter loves that show. Yeah, so I've worked with them for about three years. Uh, right now, at the second, I am doing a rewrite on the feature-length version of Miraculous Ladybug called Miraculous Awakening. So I'm rewriting some of the dialogue, the opening, opening, uh, the jokes, and I'm writing a script for that same company called Melody for uh, another feature length animated feature and uh, I've worked for the past uh, about six months no four months uh, helping out on Henry's Wendell and Wild because one of the guys that I hired Kyle Williams that I hired back on uh, Coraline to be uh, like a junior modeler uh, now is the head, head modeler at Wendell and Wild, so he asked me to help him out because they were they needed some character registration to be done on faces. So I spent about four months doing character registration, which was nice. It's just great because you know it's like I hired him. What Caroline was two thousand what I can't remember nine, something like that. I can't remember. And like, you know, 10 years later, he basically hires me to do some modeling during a pandemic. So I was like, I was very grateful, you know, full circle again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the key things in this business. The key, 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 key thing is just be nice. You know, if you're an asshole, you just burn out and you're gone forever. Yeah. If you create that, that those relationships and that family environment then yeah people are going to want you back for sure yeah and it's nice to 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 be friends with the people you were friends with like you know 20 or 94 is what uh, how long is that ago you said you're a mathematician come on Right, we're, we're, what year are we in? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Well, apparently 2021. Yeah. So 25 years ago, I mean, I, all of my friends, all the friends that I made 25 years ago in this industry, I still have them today. Nice. That's great. All those friends in San Francisco, they're, they're still, you know, people that I talk to every week. And we shared a lot of stuff through a lot of these movies, you know. Have you never thought of going down the route of making something yourself with a team of friends? I mean, uh, you know, it's it's. I've done a few short films, and that's what I've done with Dan. You know, and I have a few projects, but I'm I'm. I think I just want to. I want to graduate. You know. I think screenwriting is nice. And if I, I mean, I have the opportunity now to do it, you know, like as a legitimate screenwriter. Yeah. So, so I can't, I can't, you know, say no. Last year I, I wrote a, uh, a, the, the, the musical onstage version of, uh, Miraculous Ladybug. So I got to write it and I got to write some songs and I got 
to do and it basically it it it, it was uh it was for the uh, the spanish market so it opened up in madrid for a week so i got to write you know a show that was that opened in madrid you know and that's kind of satisfying you know it's kind of fun to actually you know had my jokes translated in spanish do you ever look back and think that's pretty cool. I bet you do. Yeah, no, it's fun. It's like, but I'll tell you the, the one thing is that I just went with the flow. I, I, the one thing that I don't have is I don't have a. Uh, I'm not very competitive. I'm not very. I don't have like, a, you know, I don't have these these. What's the word? Uh, I'm not goal oriented. I'm not. I'm not a, a, a stockbroker that just needs to be there. and needs to do this. So I kind of go with the flow, which is which is a flaw in a way because. You know, you need to be a little bit more focused and know where you're going. But like when I close my eyes and I think of myself, I still think of myself at age 14. Yeah, I look in the mirror and I go, shit, I'm bald and I got a beard. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> I have the same problem. <laughs> yeah. So I still love the same things that I love at 14. I still, my, 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 my taste has not changed at all. I don't like any adult stuff. I, I, I don't like sports. I just like movies and animation. And, uh, you know, like one of the, the things that I've always done is I've always talked to children like adults and to adults like children. And I think that works like I have a, like every time I talk to a kid, I, I just approach him as if he was an adult. I go, hey, what are you watching on Netflix? What show is good? What kind of models? What's your favorite Gundam? Do you which Star Wars movie did you like? You know, I just go straight into and every time I talk to an adult, I go, oh, so how are you? Oh, good. Everything's OK with you. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Do you want to want to do this? Oh, right. Right. Are you sure you, do you need, you need a break to go to lunch? And it seems to work really well. Yeah, I love the way that kids talk and they leap from one subject to another with without a thought. You know, the one minute they're telling you about their favorite show on Netflix, the next thing they're telling you about a magic trick they've learned or, you know, how their their knees soggy because they fell in a puddle. It's just this kind of unfiltered. Yeah. And we, then we forget you learn how a, to do that. Yeah. And you learn a lot, you know, a lot. I mean, I mean, every time I need to know what, what's the next show that I need to watch, I'll ask, my, you know, a 14 year old friend of mine, I'll say, yeah. I'll, text him and say well what do i gotta watch what anime do i'm watching and he's like oh you gotta watch this one and this one and this one and you gotta parasite the maxim and you gotta watch this and i'm like oh and it's like this fucking great shows that i would have never watched and i'm like you know it's, it's, it's awesome i'm like this is great you know that that segues perfectly to to call it a day here then martin because we've hit the two hour mark <laughs> okay. two hour mark but um yeah i'm about to go and watch a studio ghibli film with my kids which yeah. one we're not sure yet we're going to pick one because they're all on netflix here in the uk at the moment so maybe how's moving castle what did you watch recently spirited away we watched last week um we've seen my neighbor totoro so many times um and kiki's delivery service we've we've not seen porco rosso yet um but you're missing the two best ones go on well uh, laputo flying castle i mean that's the best one of all and then nausicaa yeah, we haven't seen Nausicaa, yeah. Well, Nausicaa and then and, and Laputa is are, are, Laputa is the best one. Porco Rosso is great, you know, it's a yeah. great movie. It's they're very adult, they're very mature movies. But have they ever watched the Lupin movies? Lupin no. the 3rd? Oh, you, you should watch them. They're great. Castle Cagliostro is amazing. You know, it's the same um, company that yes. that Mizaki. But you should there's so much fun. Castle Cagliostro Lupin the 3rd 
like you know it's that it's probably 1980 like seven or something like that that's but there's, a, just... there's a timelessness to those movies though isn't there like oh yeah my kids had no we watched uh totoro and they were like when was that made was it a couple of years ago i was like no it was like 1986 or something have you watched uh yeah did they like the disney's and the don bluth yeah, yeah, they've watched a whole bunch. We've got Disney Plus and, you know, as I said, we're in lockdown, so we've worked our way through those. Over the years, actually, we've worked our way through a lot of those. How old are they? I have a six-year-old, I have a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old daughter. They're all girls, yeah. So have you watched uh, The Secret of Nim? Uh, no. Oh, then you should. I'm writing these down. Um, I mean, watch... that's Don Bluth's masterpiece, The Secret of Nim. I've not watched Secret Nim. What did we watch last week? We watched something. Um, oh, was it the Song of the Sea? Oh, the Song of the Sea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they just did the Wolf Wolf Walker. Wolf yeah, Talker. Wolf. Yeah, that's on Apple, isn't it? I think. Yeah, I want to see those that. guys. Those guys. I met them in uh, in um, in Canada at like an animation festival uh, while we were working you know, after Coraline. Uh, and they were the, the young guys are like in their 20s and they had just done their first movie which i can't remember the secret of kills and they were the nicest more down-to-earth fun incredible directors that i met and you could tell they keep making movies you know one after the other that's that's the key yeah what's the, yeah, the Wolf, uh, tom moore Wolf. yeah tom moore yeah, yeah yeah oh he's so nice you know, a movie you should watch also, uh, I mean, if your kids hasn't seen it, they, they have they seen the original Dark Crystal? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And yeah. and uh, Labyrinth? And that's where I'll leave our conversation. Yes, I have seen Labyrinth, Martin. And yeah, we did go on to talk about a dozen other films. He gave me a huge, great list of animations that I should check out, not only with my kids, but also for myself, some more adult-themed ones. Um, we then spoke for about another 40 minutes after that. He's a really nice guy, and I really did enjoy talking to him and listening to his stories. Thanks to Jason Henry and Dan Lanigan for setting that one up. Um, I really appreciate that. He, he did fit the mould. He did fit the podcast Thanks, guys. So for next time, I've got a number of possibilities coming in at the moment. I'm hoping to speak to somebody who was big in the effects industry, another person who is a very well-known female director. Um, I'm also tapping up all my connections, all my contacts over the years to see if I can get some, some really cool guests. If you've got any suggestions, do let me know. And please do support me if you can via Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Jamie Benning. As I said in my intro, I'm not taking any work at the moment um, because of health issues in the house here. So the only income I have right now is from the podcast, which isn't much, but I'm very, very grateful to those people that do contribute. I really couldn't do it without you. And do, you know, do do get in contact with me here. Like, tell me if you have any stories of working on films or anything behind the scenes, if you're an extra or if you, you know, had an uncle or auntie that worked on one of these big films that we all love. Let me know your story and I'll, I'll read that out on the podcast as well. Thanks, as always, for everyone's support, all your feedback, all your comments. Please do like and subscribe um, wherever you listen to podcasts. It does make a big difference if you leave comments, uh, hopefully positive ones, to where I appear within uh, Apple Podcasts, for instance. 
So if you are enjoying it, please do just take those few moments to go and make that comment. Do appreciate it. And yeah, just be sensible, please, out there. Let's all wear our masks. Let's all do our bit. I know we miss each other and we miss being in each other's company, but um, I also love my family and I don't want to see them falling foul of anything because of some idiot out there. So tell your friends to do the right thing and let's continue to do it and let's hope we get out the other side of this thing and we return uh, to cinemas and we return to going places and doing the things that we love. All right, take care, everyone. Hope to see you next time.